This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The U.S. Senate has successfully pushed through a massive climate spending package that this weekend. In addition to tackling health care costs and tax codes, the Inflation Reduction Act, as it's called, earmarks billions of dollars in clean energy infrastructure. President Biden says the package will be crucial to the country's transition away from fossil fuels. It will be the most important investment not hyperbole, the most important investment we've ever made in our energy security and developing cost savings and job creating clean energy solutions for the future. It's a big deal. The conversation Savannah Harriman spoke with Leah Laramie. She's a new coordinator for the State Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation Commission. She's had her fingers crossed that the bill would pass. Here's Laramie. For sure. That was just a great surprise for us all especially the amount of money that they're really putting in towards natural and working lands. I was really pleased to see that because that's going to be a huge piece in how we are able to meet our net negative goals because we're not going to be able to get everything off of producing carbon emissions. So being able to sequester some carbon as well from that atmosphere from our natural and working lands is going to really be key as well. And carbon sequestration, that can be a tricky idea to wrap your head around. It felt like science fiction the first time I heard it. Can you give listeners a little understanding of what that is? So carbon sequestration is taking carbon, which is a greenhouse gas that we emit by burning fossil fuels, and it's taking it out of the atmosphere, so out of the air, and putting it into, say, a biomass, which is like a tree or vegetation or something. And obviously we can't physically do that, but it's the natural processes of trees and vegetation. They need that in order to grow. So that's part of their building blocks. So by planting more trees and um, putting more vegetation and making sure that we protect our, our soils by not disturbing them, we're really locking in that carbon, taking it from the air and putting it into the trees and into the ground can also uh, lock it down into our substrate, so into the rocks of the of the islands. Right now, we don't have that capability, that, that geological locking of carbon, um, but there's other places such as Iceland that are, that are doing this technology. So right now, we're really focused on locking in carbon in our trees, our vegetation, and our soils. Will it be necessary in order to meet our international climate goals to explore some of that technology that's actually pulling carbon out of the air? I think, you know, I think it's something that we definitely should be exploring. I think we want to look at all avenues possible to us right now. Um, You know, there's these huge shifts and moves that we need to make that I think it's necessary for us to explore every avenue possible. But I really don't want it to detract from the fact that there are these natural processes that are going to not only help us lock in carbon, but as I said before, you know, lock in um, our water resilience as well, going to keep our islands cooler, provide ecosystem protection for our native species, and also have a huge cultural connection as well. In some ways, it sounds like the perfect climate solution because it's so straightforward. Maintain our forests and protect our forests and watersheds. How challenging is that goal actually? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge challenge, especially when we're only dedicating 1% of our state's resources towards it. It's, it's going to be a huge amount of work and a huge lift, but it's one that I think will pay off in huge dividends as well. We have some great, amazing people working in this sector who are supremely dedicated to making this happen. So the only thing they're really lacking is that financial resources. We have the technical capabilities, we have the knowledge, know-how, and we have amazingly dedicated people, but we just need more funding to make this happen. So, And you mentioned that the Inflation Reduction Act does hold a lot of promise uh, for climate activists and people working in clean energy. Is there something here at home, one individual's action, that you find very encouraging? 
you know, the burden really shouldn't be falling to the individual. It should, really should be led by the federal, international, and state and county governments. Um, you know, there's a lot of burden already put on people here in Hawaii, the high cost of living. So it's it's really up to our, um, you know, political leadership to, to take that lead. There are, there are things that we can point out and, and show people, like, this is really happening, and it's dangerous. In Europe, they had these huge heat waves that were, you know, very difficult for a lot of people who aren't set up for this very hot weather. One of the realities is is that we're going to be seeing these changes happening even more quickly if we don't take action right now. And as much as I want to spread the message of hope, I, that doesn't mean that I don't want to take inaction as a strategy as well. We need to take action right now if we're going to prevent these changes from going even further. And uh, climate change, of course, bleeds out from the environment into our daily lives because, as you said, we are intertwined and dependent upon the ecosystems that we live in, particularly on islands. What organizations or entities is your office working with when we consider climate change as a public health crisis. We consider, um, for instance, heat as something that's going to impact vulnerable positions or the fact that the economy will have to change in order to account for our green energy transition. So that's one of the great things about the commission itself is it's a collaboration um, with a lot of the different departments um, within the state as well as the counties. But those are not the only people we work with. We work with the Nature Conservancy, we work with Department of Health and um, Nonprofits, Ulupuno Initiative. So we really are willing to work with anyone who's interested in climate change and trying to support their their actions. And, you know, we work really closely with UH and looking at climate justice and what this, the vulnerabilities of our communities are going to be due to climate change. So we're looking at all these different pieces and making sure that we're in this transition. We're doing it in a way where we're really lifting all the communities up. It's really about you know being a climate-ready Hawaii. It's about having this resilience so that we're stronger as we move towards you know more climate-friendly, carbon-net-negative economy. Mm-hmm. Who has the commission and UH identified as being particularly vulnerable? We've gotten as far as creating like this index of places. We haven't, you know, really mapped this out yet. That's kind of phase two. Um, but you know, I would say that the folks that are particularly vulnerable are those that are not close to critical infrastructure, such as hospitals or um, you know, fire stations, police stations, um, things like that. The the people that are maybe a little bit um, further removed from that. Um, anyone on the coast is obviously going to be more vulnerable to climate change because of sea level rise. You know, so I think it's it's something that we're still in the process of doing. But, you know, generally we will find that people, you know, low to moderate income are going to be more impacted by climate change um, as we see, you know, with environmental justice in general, that that's the case. Primarily because they where they're living and located is somewhere further away from the critical infrastructure they are because it's less expensive to live there. So as temperatures rise, you know, it's it's areas, um, there's this great tool, this tree map viewer, canopy viewer, which shows where there are more trees in which neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods that, you know, are maybe lower moderate income have less trees there. And that's just a great indicator to see that, you know, if you have less trees there, it's probably because less resources are invested in those communities. You know, another example is just that they don't have the resources to make those shifts, putting in an AC, for example or to um, you know, have solar energy as um, electricity prices will increase as we make shifts, or you know, be able to buy an electric vehicle. You know? So some of these like, investments that we'll be making in the state are going to be really incredibly huge and helpful to folks so that they can do those things. Because right now it's very difficult to make those shifts and those changes. I think the real key here is just making sure that everything we do has 
people in mind and we're not just thinking of how we can get to this goal by 2045 but what we're thinking of is how can we get to this goal in 2045 and make sure that we're building a robust resilient economy that ensures that people are taken into account for and we're creating this lovely future where everyone can really live and thrive in Hawaii. That was Leo Laramie, the new coordinator for the State Climate Change Mitigation and Adaptation Commission. She was talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and equitable actions against climate change. She spoke to the conversations of Anna Harriman prior to this weekend's Senate vote. The act now heads to the House where it is expected to pass. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. End-of-life discussions are not easy, but waiting until the last minute limits the type of services hospice organizations do best. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with experts about how to make this difficult discussion easier for everyone. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. listening to the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Airplanes have been a part of island life for as long as anyone can remember. The first nonstop flight from the continental U.S. landed in 1925. Lewis Hawaiian Tours was the first company to offer the flights between the islands in 1927. But the first airplane flight in Hawaii took place on Oahu in 1910, just seven years after the Wright brothers took to the skies. It took off from Wanalua Polo Field using a grassy strip as a runway. Tickets to watch the flight were a dollar each, and 3,000 people bought them. Hundreds more watched for free from the surrounding hilltops. The plane was a Curtis B-18 biplane. It was made of spruce, steel, tubing, and a rubberized silk wing covering. The wingspan measured about 30 feet, and it didn't have a cabin or even a compartment. But it did have one seat for the pilot, and today we want you to tell us his name. Who was the first man to fly an airplane in Hawaii? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com.
With the primary just five days away, we continue to look at the candidates for governor. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, who is a doctor, has spent a lot of time in scrubs. He wears them in some of his campaign ads, and that medical background has boosted his profile during the pandemic, stepping up when there was a void of information during the health and economic crisis. Critics say he sometimes overstepped his boundaries as lieutenant governor, which sometimes led to some confusion about messaging. But supporters say his communication skills were a plus as the public looked for leadership. Green echoed the call by Honolulu chief engineer at the Board of Water Supply for the military to release fuel spill records of nearly eight decades at the Red Hill facility has been in operation. We should have those records released. We also have to have more wells drilled, more monitoring wells drilled. And ultimately, the military has to make not only the state whole and our people whole as far as clean water and the cost of clean water, but there may very well be some acquisitions that they need to buy wells that are not any longer pure so that we can, as a state, afford to do all that we have to for water. Uh, but Ernie's going to be central uh, in my administration to how we handle the Navy if I'm chosen. And, you know, I, I know that uh, the University of Hawaii also just put out some studies that they've been doing about uh, contamination in the military's drinking water system. I know there's been some question about the methods. They're trying to basically just provide as much as information as we can to figure out what is going on with where the plume is headed and, and, and the impact to our water. Yes, well, the more information, the better. I believe they use spectroscopy, which is you, you shine light through water and you're able to then detect the wavelength changes in water and you can detect compounds and it's important this is personal for me as a physician because I've taken care of so many people that have had cancer in our state over the generations and you have to worry about hydrocarbons which is fuel when that's in the water it does increase risk now fortunately this was a monitoring well but unfortunately, the water and the fuel will move over time. So this is going to be a long process. The most important thing for us to do is to get all the fuel out of Red Hill. That's first and foremost because we have to do that and do it faster than two years, by the way, if at all possible, because there have been leaks and it's not a perfect system, as you saw with the spill. So that's the most important thing. But in addition to that, there's going to have to be real-time monitoring. My team is going to uh, approach this, and we've been discussing this with the leadership across the state. We're going to approach it much like we approach COVID, which is to use a, an emergency response system, have them constantly getting updates for the people, and I will be transparent with the people of Hawaii like I was with COVID. Uh, there are some interesting parallels because it was our health at stake. So I think people appreciated that transparency. We don't always get that much, and this will be one way to do it. We have talked about the timeline for defueling, and uh, you know, you had raised some issues early on and talked about Par Hawaii using some of their facilities to house some of the fuel, and, and they have done that. But there are also questions raised about, I think, uh, donations that Par Hawaii might have made to your campaign. You know, I've been honored to have support from over 4,000 donors, and they range from school teachers that give me a $2 donation to an executive that gives me much more. It doesn't really matter to me one bit. The reason we wanted to recommend Par Hawaii is because they actually can more uh, quickly get that fuel up above ground. I, I don't think this is going to be in their economic interest. In fact, they're probably going to do a lot of work that ultimately uh, is pretty ungratifying, thankless work to move that fuel out of the way. Uh, the point, though, is they could actually do it, and it gives us capacity sooner rather than later. I also have asked people uh, in the military to could strongly consider divesting some of that fuel to the state. Let us buy it at cost or under cost so that we can use it for transportation between the islands. Let us use some of that fuel so that we can lower our transportation costs. And no one else has mentioned this or suggested this other than me during this campaign to you know, to deal with some of the cost of living. We have a very high cost of shipping right now because of the cost of fuel in the Ukraine and Russia and all the challenges we have. So I'm actually leading, you know, and I, I look past the negativity of these campaigns. Of course, that's always what happens, except for the fact that I have not said one negative thing about my opponents. I just won't do it. Your opponents have ganged up on you as far as disclosure. They're raising questions about the, the uh, money that uh, you indicated that you made off of Green Healthcare International. And they're asking you to disclose how much and, and who donated. You and know, how do you want to address that? Well, certainly not a donation. I worked ER shifts. That's it. End of story. And that's what, that's what every doctor and lawyer and professional does. You have to have an LLC because you have to have liability uh, covered. And so they were just making uh, what they could. They make hay out of uh, misleading personal attacks. Of course, my opponents both have LLCs. I'm going to pause right there and just not get negative because it's better that the next governor be thought of as a person that's positive. Their personal attacks are nothing more than trying to mislead people. You know that they said I wasn't board certified. 
um, that super PAC. I was board certified in family medicine. Are you kidding me? Then in the emergency room, of course, I was fully credentialed like every other doctor gets credentialed for the hospital work that they do. So lots of misinformation, but I've been honored to have so much support from people across the state because we reject negativity. We reject that kind of nonsense. And frankly, it's been the honor of a lifetime to be a doctor during a pandemic working besides my healthcare hero colleagues. Yeah, but you don't feel the need to disclose any uh, of that information, I, even though legally you don't need to? Not only legally, the question is, do I not need to? But I did. I did. Watkins Medical Group did the contract, and Hawaii Emergency Physician Association was the other that followed them. That was all. You know, during this pandemic, is all I did was ER work and work in the hospital. So I actually did report it, and they're just you know, using crass political attacks. But again, people don't like that. They prefer that I, for instance, during the debates, ask questions of uh, the congressman about his father and what role he had in his life. And I asked Mrs. Cayetano about uh, her role as a business leader and how that would help the state of Hawaii. Meanwhile, of course, they tried to slip my throat. But that's okay, you know, because people show their true colors, and they certainly did. And I'm trying to show mine, which is to say positive. I know they did raise uh, issues about non-residents donating to your uh, campaign. And I believe one of them might have been Dr. Jack Lewin, who was a former health director here in Hawaii, who still has a relationship and cares very much for the state. He still ha- he still ha- lives part-time in Maui, <laughs> you know. So this was one of our heroes uh, of old who who helped write, I believe, some of the prepaid health rules and helped us get the universal health care. So uh, I find it interesting that they fixated on that. But the reason that uh, the other opponents in this race fixated on me was because they don't have any ideas really of their own that were different than mine and or certainly did more than the ideas. For instance, I put out a housing plan, which was really comprehensive, so the first to talk about using emergency proclamations, emergency rules for affordable housing. And you all know that I've worked passionately on homelessness, though as lieutenant governor with only modest capacity, but wait until you see me act as governor and work on those kind of issues. So it was really, in some ways, it's an interesting flattery when people just attack you for nothing or make personal attacks because then you know that your ideas are better. And I've always tried to have ideas that I take from the community and, and take from people that are supportive. But Again, I don't want to talk about the negativity. I want to talk about anything, affordability, making sure we get rid of the tax on food and medicine. That would help. Uh, Some of my opponents also share that idea. You see actually a lot of similarity in our policy position, so they made it a uh, cult of the personality. Well, you know, we have been seeing a barrage of negative ads and lots of big money dropped on on, uh, key races, lieutenant governor's race, second congressional race as well. Yes. And there are concerns because that super PAC did help get you in office. What makes you think they actually helped me get in office? You know, I won people over uh, by being a physician for 14 years and a legislator. Now, I appreciate anyone who supported me, and there are super PACs all over the place. In this case, uh, they have not been involved in my race practically at all. They've been involved instead in uh, other races. And I will say this, I don't like negativity. And um, when Be Change Now was ever involved with mine, they never said a negative peep uh, that I saw about my opponents uh, in, in 2018 when I became lieutenant governor, and certainly not now. I think they had an ad about uh, people canoeing and paddling in the same direction. So my team always stays positive, and I try to put out into the universe that people should stay positive. And it's the exact opposite of what my opponents have done. Uh, But I will say, just very candidly, I don't like negativity and I don't like when PACs or super PACs uh, go negative. But if I may, I don't have a super PAC. The congressman does have a super PAC. He's still putting corporate money into it as recently as June 30th from corporations. The other individual in the race, former first lady, her sister and their private chef are running a super PAC, which hit me again today in the newspaper. They're doing it, not me. And so when we talk about these PACs and so on, they're actually organizing and coordinating with them. I'm not. So I just don't want to go there. I don't want to uh, be a part of that kind of thing. I just want to run a straightforward, positive election that talks about really the big issues, which, as you know, are housing, homelessness, and affordability, plus any number of other things like Red Hill, like you mentioned, or education. You know, we did see the city and county, you know, talk about their goals to try and get some of the affordable housing up pretty quick here. Yes. Uh, You have any other ideas about what else we can do? Yes, I do, actually. So a couple things that we need to do. So we should take distressed properties or properties that are being underutilized. Because remember, the world changed with COVID. A lot of people are working from home. We have government buildings that are less occupied, less used. And so I will task uh, my DAGS director to whoever that becomes the next DAGS director 
to make sure that we have full utilization of our facilities. Older schools get transitioned to to really house people. That if we see distressed properties that are like older hotels, that we turn those over into efficiencies for workforce housing. There's just a lot of things that we can do quite quickly. And then, of course, there's Department of Hawaiian Homelands, where we have we still have twenty like twenty three thousand individuals on the list, and we have two hundred three thousand acres that has to be dis- dispositioned really quickly. And there are ways to do it. We have to make the hard choices about whether we go vertical or we just disposition the land more aggressively. But either way, it's good for the Hawaiian people. As I've said many times, too many people die on the list. Too many people never, you know, make or take the opportunity to even get on the list. And I've shared those stories because they are relevant to the Hawaiian condition. Also, these things bleed over to the other large issues. Uh, And you didn't ask it, but I'll answer it. We have this impasse between our cultures, and the cultural impasse led to the pause uh, on TMT. And it's because we have not lived up to our promises. Now, we can go back and forth 100 times over about who's responsible and what's right and what's wrong. We all love science. I certainly love astronomy. But we have to do things right. You have to do these projects right. And if you don't build housing for the Hawaiian community, if they are twice as likely to be homeless, if they're twice as likely to be incarcerated, how can you blame them for being distressed? And when people are distressed, they either protest or they don't work together. And we need people to work together. That's going to be my goal as governor. We hear a lot about the stadium development and the housing that could be built there. But how worried are you about this Red Hill situation, you know, if the water is going to curtail what we can put up and we do need the housing? You know, we've got a a prison that's proposed for, you know, a lava. And yet if the water's not clean, you know, what's going to happen? No, that's that's the right question. I'm I'm incredibly worried about that. Uh, We do need to build tens of thousands of homes, but if we don't have water, you won't be able to do it easily. I have already reached out to the military and asked them, and in fact insisted, that they build housing with us. And they're going to need to do it. And that means they're going to have to help solve our water problem and invest in housing both. They may even have to sell us some of their housing and build their own. These are things that will have to be done because until we have housing, we won't have enough nurses. Until we have housing, we won't have enough teachers. And so the water problem is going to be huge. I've also reached out to them to ask them to work on desalinization in a more expeditious way. They are doing some pilots, and Ernie's been right at the center of that too, which is terrific. But this is the time where we're going to need the full largesse of military resources if they're going to help us get through these problems. Because it can't just float, maybe clean it up at Red Hill, but then leave us in the lurch. We have too many things going forward that we need to do. Were you disappointed that Carlos de Toro didn't address more of the water issues when he was here during RIMPAC? Yes, I was. Uh, RIMPAC is a very unique and, and unusual situation where they're training uh, for military exercises or, or disasters. I went and actually volunteered and, and witnessed some of them on the health side, which is something that I'm interested in do. The long play is we're going to have to work directly with all of the military, the Army, the Navy, and directly with the Secretary of Defense. I will go and speak with the Secretary of Defense Uh, in the first weeks of my tenure as governor, if I'm chosen, because that is more than anything, one of the problems has to be solved. Red Hill, which ties into building housing, which ultimately ties into what the relationship will be between the people of Hawaii, its governor, and the future of all of the leases and where we put them and when we re-up them. All these things are just very real relationship questions. And I'm a believer in just going right to the, the challenge and talking through these relationship issues and solving them. As you know, in families, you can let uh, some kind of um, slight linger and become a cancer. And we can't let that happen. There's just too much on the line. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking with us about his priorities. If elected as governor, polls have him as the front runner in the race. Uh, Green shared that uh, primary election day, August 13th, also happens to be his wedding anniversary. He and his wife, Jamie, who's an attorney, have been married for 16 years. For more election info and information on candidates, check out the election page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. When our listeners have comments or questions about interviews we air, they often leave a message on our talkback line or send in an email to our uh, talkback inbox. Diane from Waikele called in about our segment last Friday with the Board of Water Supply about the detection of a petroleum compound in a monitoring well in the Moanalua area. Calling in about the segment on the Moanalua water supply, I was able to listen to it fairly carefully because I was in terrible traffic, just really disappointed that the last words were, can't remember verbatim, but 
the first indicators of the threat of our water supply, I believe, was something close to that. And disappointing because both Mr. Lau and the other very articulate gentleman really went to lengths to indicate that our water supply was safe. It was not in jeopardy. This is an indication of something unusual that's worth further research, but we're talking in parts per trillion. And so it just leaves me wondering, are we trying to alarm people and be sensationalists? Or are we trying to give good information? And because of this and just many other statements and tones that have concerned me the last months, I did not renew my support this year. We'll see what I do next year. Thank you. And thank you for your perspective, Diane. We'll take this into consideration. Following our segments with political candidates, we got this in our email. Aloha. Admittedly, I've not closely followed all of the political forums and debates. I find it really difficult to understand why the folks running for office, governor and lieutenant governor especially, have not been asked to comment and state their position on the most recent affordable housing corruption scandal. It's my opinion that anyone and everyone holding an elected office would have known or should have known what was going on. The perfect opportunity would be when a candidate states their position on affordable housing and goes on about how important it is and how they're going to support it. Uh, where were they when this guy and the attorneys were committing fraud and right under everybody's nose? In my opinion, everyone knew and no one did anything. It's not logical to think that this level of corruption, having gone on for so many years, was a surprise to anyone, except for people like me that work, have a family, and simply do not have the time to read every article and stay up on every issue. Mahalo, Connie. Thank you for the feedback. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line check today is with Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christian Downey. She has a story about wild pigs in East Honolulu. Good morning. Uh, yes, hi, how are you? <laughs> so pigs, I mean, I, I have seen them on the highway like over by the Pali and way back in Hawaii Kai, but you're, you're talking about an explosion in Aina Haina. Yes, yes. What we're seeing is increasing numbers of pigs moving down into suburban areas. Um, of course, we'd all been aware of them living in more re- remote forested areas, but apparently during the pandemic, a lot of people took to feeding them, especially the cute little piglets. But the cute little piglets have gotten bigger and bigger, and they're having little piglets of their own. And now it's causing neighborhoods, uh, even uh, even. Uh, neighborhoods in eastern Honolulu to have an explosion of pig population. So I know one of the pictures uh, that you have in your article shows uh, someone actually um, with a whole bunch of food in in their trunk, (laughs) and they're putting out plates of of this food for the pigs. Yes. uh, As it's turned out, some people sort of see themselves as the buffet wagon. Um, And yes, I'd heard that there were people that were feeding them, but I wasn't sure if it was true, so I went up and walked around uh, Aina Haina myself in some of the higher reaches, and I actually saw a car uh, with the engine running, the trunk open, and a big bag of cat food partially opened outside, and plates all around the floor, uh, all around the ground, uh, around the back of the car, uh, making it very easy for a lot of feral cats to feed, to feed you know, to, to, to eat. But also in the night, the pigs come and eat there as well. Yeah, I mean, that that is a problem. You know, we've seen that happen in, in uh, parks. Uh, but to have them in, in, in the valley there, uh, not a good thing because these <laughs> pigs can get quite large. Well, some of them weigh up to 200 pounds, and it's causing some very frightening interactions between residents of Aina Haina and uh, their children, and their pets. Um, a 200-pound boar can be dangerous. They can be unpredictable. Um, and they carry disease. Um, they cause erosion because they denude the landscape. They eat down into the roots of the plants. Um, and they can be quite smelly. Well, I know that a number of uh, uh, residents have complained to the neighborhood board. 
uh, yes. In fact, the, a number of them took their complaints there over a series of months. And the uh, neighborhood board there uh, that is part of Aina Haina or that includes Aina Haina is uh, Kuli O'o. Kalani Iki, the neighborhood board reviewed this issue over several weeks and came up with a resolution that was passed on Thursday night, and it calls for asking city and state officials to make it illegal to feed feral pigs, and they also want to investigate whether changes in hunting rules could make it easier for hunters to get in there and take some of that pig, which they point out is also pig meat that would feed families. And I know there was some concern that the hunters had about using some uh, uh, sterilization methods, you know, uh, that in some states, you know, are are legal. Right. Um, Among the other proposals, of course, are hunting, trapping them. Um, And there is a new pig contraceptive that is being... um, is being experimented with in different places in the United States. A lot of hunters are very afraid that um, pig birth control could have some negative environmental impact. Um, But at this point, what was proposed by the neighborhood board was uh, limited to uh, trying to get rules to stop people from feeding feral pigs and trying to make it easier for for people to hunt them. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, you know, why do we have to spell out every little thing? Just, you know, if it's wildlife, you shouldn't um, you shouldn't feed them. <laughs> you change their behavior. Well, even the cutest little pig can grow. And when it grows and it's 200 pounds, it might menace the family dog. Right. Okay. Well, so we'll just have to see how this gets managed, uh, either on the state level or the city level, if these pigs are on um, government property. Yes, indeed. All right. Um, well, thank you so much, Kirsten, and we'll have to see, uh, you know, what the next step's going to be, and hopefully nobody gets hurt in the meantime. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. We've been chatting thank with you. reporter uh, Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read her story about feral pigs at org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health, observing Safe and Sound Week, a nationwide event that recognizes organizations committed to safety. More by searching OSHA Safe and Sound Week. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Ampila Rampili, author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reimagining a future that is just and prosperous for. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The James Webb Space Telescope continues to add to its growing list of scientific firsts by observing what might be some of the first galaxies to form. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, some things we can try and spot in the sky. We're fortunate to have astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through it all. He joins us now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for the planet Saturn in the east after sunset, with Jupiter rising also in the east at around 9.30 p.m. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be very challenging. 
And something we are so grateful for is the James Webb Space Telescope. This thing didn't just cost a whole lot of money. It is actually delivering all kinds of great stories so far. And you've got another one? Yes, as you said, it continues to add to its ever-growing list of scientific firsts as it looks deep into the cosmos. The JWST, as it's known, is now observing galaxies that are so distant that they are thought to be amongst the first galaxies that formed after the Big Bang. When we talk about these distant objects and their age, it can start to get a little confusing, as looking deep into the cosmos also means we are looking back into time. This is a great one here for you to try to explain how telescopes, astronomers sometimes say they're like time machines. Try to put that into something we can understand. Well, quite simply, it's all about the speed of light being finite, the vast distances between objects in the universe, and the time elapsed since the Big Bang. Oh, well, of course. What else? <laughs> <laughs> and the speed of light, what's that, like 190,000 miles a second or something like that? Wow, you're super close. It's 186,000 miles per second. <laughs> I knew it was something so like that. pretty fast. Yeah, man. <laughs> But it's not fast enough to quickly travel the vast distances between objects in the universe. Yeah, and a great example is the moon, right? Because the light that comes from the moon is a second later because it takes a second for that light to get here. That's right. And when we look at the sun, we're actually seeing it as it was roughly eight minutes ago because the sun is so far away that it takes light as fast as it is, eight minutes to reach the Earth. When we look at distant galaxies, we are seeing them not as they are now, but as they were billions of years ago, because it's taken the light billions of years to reach us. And the universe is such a strange place, huh? It is, and it gets weirder when you think that all of these galaxies that JWST is imaging now don't actually exist anymore, at least not in the form that we capture them in. So in effect, by using the JWST, we get to watch the past happen. If we made a video from all our images, we would be able to essentially watch the past happen before our eyes. It's pretty bonkers when you think about it. Pretty bonkers. That's a good one to leave it on. It's you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, another Stargazer Report. You can find that at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about the first man to fly a plane in Hawaii. His plane, called the Skylark, flew 500 feet above Moanalua Polo Field in 1910. One boy watching from the ground called the plane a pinau, the name of the great Hawaiian dragonfly. When he landed, the pilot was greeted with cheers and a bottle of champagne. His name? Well, he's probably best known today as the Curtis Daredevil, but those close to him knew him as James C. Bud Mars, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Prior to coming to Hawaii, Mars had the reputation of being the most daring flyer in the country. After his first Hawaii flight was a success, he got back in the plane and dropped paper souvenirs all over Moanalua Field. He told a Sunday advertiser, I am proud to hold the Pioneer Air record for Honolulu, and I am glad, too, that the new Skylark has taken her maiden flight uh, here. I find your Hawaiian air currents rather tough ones, but everything else was lovely, end quote. And congrats to our, our listener, Travis from Makiki. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we hear a lot about the need to get more of our young minds into STEM programs. That's short for science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, next week, uh, we'll be gathering some of those minds at an event honoring Honua scholars at the high school and college level. We talked to Kyle Yoshida. He's a brainchild and the executive director of the fledgling group. The Kamehameha School alum now is in a Ph.D. bioengineering program at Stanford University. He explains how it all came to be. I guess growing up, I watched Still Night the Science Guy, probably like a lot of other people. And it's kind of like that way that you approach problems, like questioning, uh, making a hypothesis, coming up with a problem and a solution. 
And I kind of just really like that whole framework of science and using it in engineering and figuring out how to apply that same framework to other problems in life. And I think that, like, I'm interested genuinely in, like, doing science itself, but also, like, that process where you can ask a question and come up with an answer and, like, do it methodically. I'm really attracted to that. So, like, even applying science to, like, what you want to eat for dinner, like, sometimes I overthink things and I'm like, okay, like, if I eat this, then blah, blah, blah. And there's, like, even scientific methods in, like, everything you do. But that's kind of just me nerding out. Okay. Um, well, you yep. are a, a PhD candidate uh, in science over there at, at Stanford. Uh, uh, tell us about what uh, what you're working on. Yeah. So I'm a fourth-year PhD student in mechanical engineering. I work in the collaborative haptics and robotics and medicine lab at Stanford. And the main thing that I work on are wearable haptic devices and soft robots. So wearable haptic devices help augment through the sense of touch. So some of the things that we're working on are like wearables that can help you perceive objects in virtual reality or can be used for communication or sending social gestures. And then on the soft robot side, I work on building new actuators that can like bend and be used for grippers or haptic devices. So these are real-life solutions to problems that we might have. Yeah, and I think one of the other projects we're working on, like, purely, like, in the haptics realm is uh, actually using our cell phones to deploy user studies. So during the pandemic, one of the things I realized is that we all have these cell phones, and they all have these, they can vibrate, and... We can actually collect data from a lot of people by them participating in our user studies. And we also found that there's like actual medical applications and also kind of product design applications where we can use cell phones to kind of monitor peripheral neuropathy in a remote setting, which is kind of all these cool little applications of haptic in the field that we're kind of directly on problems that we have. Tell us how you're trying to get more young people into science and technology and engineering classes. Uh, you know, you're the uh, executive director of this uh, Hanua Scholars, uh, and, and we understand that you're fairly new, and so you're trying to get the word out to people. Yeah, during the pandemic, uh, we saw that a lot of students uh, were putting off college education or trying to, like, rethink like oh like even if I pursued a degree in STEM like what job would there be in Hawaii and one of Hawaii's largest export is our kiki and a lot of us are seeing that we're like oh like how can we find the right fit for us how can we practice science in the islands and I think that it was kind of twofold one was that we wanted to find a way to provide mentorship and also not only helping people succeed in the field but also learn how to evolve with the field to benefit the community. So Honua Scholars uh, was created. Uh, we have a cute acronym. It's helping others navigate, understand, and achieve. And overall, we don't really care if you'll end up pursuing STEM or not, but the idea that you can use STEM in daily life and also be aware that there's other people in STEM industries, other people doing research on Hawaii's coral reefs, on our forest. I think it's about making people aware that these exist and there's people actively working on kind of these community-based problems. And I think it would be really great to have everyone involved in our organization and come to our events, whether you're a student, teacher, whether you're not even affiliated with anything remotely scientific, because I think in essence, everyone has a scientific connection. You've got this event later this month, and it'll be your first in-person event? It's our organization's first in-person event. It was made possible through funding from Stanford, uh, the Hawaii People's Fund, um, sponsorship from the Pacific American Foundation. And essentially, we've been working with these groups. We wanted to come together and create a setting where we call it a symposium because we have people talking about science, but we're making it digestible so that the people presenting it are uh, accessible to everyone in the community. And it's 
meant as a place where we can network and come up with new ideas to solve kind of the STEM problems that we have today. And one of the core motivating factors in creating Honua Scholars was that we want to use STEM in Hawaii in ways that benefit the local people. So whether that be learning about how our fish ponds have been working or designing new robots that can be used for excavating like old bombs on Koholawe or something. Uh, the idea is like it's about trying to better bond our scientific efforts with the community. And this place will kind of give us this setting where we create these ideas and come together and network. It's going to be at the Croc Center. Yep. And, and is this a kind of a hybrid event? Yeah. So we encourage like everyone to sign up, student, teacher, whether you majored in STEM, not majored in STEM. We have a limited number of in-person registrations. We're about like 80% filled now, but we can still take a bunch more people. And we have virtual attendee lists and it'll be streamed and made hybrid. What's also unique about our organization, I guess, in that because we were created during the pandemic, we were able to have a lot of virtual events. So I was actually looking recently at our analytics and we have like over like 60 countries represented. And I think that's the really cool thing that the values that we have in Hawaii can affect change not only in our local community, but also throughout the world. Maybe 80% of our audience is local people in Hawaii, but Mm -hmm. we also uh, kind of draw in people who might have moved away from Hawaii for school or for a job. And also other people who are interested in learning more about like how people in Hawaii have approached mentorship and solving problems. That was Kyle Yoshida of Hanua Scholars talking about an upcoming hybrid virtual and in-person event coming up later this month at the Croc Center in Kapolei. The dinner and symposium is Saturday, August 20th from 4.30 to 9 p.m. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Democratic gubernatorial candidate Kai Kahele as we move into this last week before the primary election. We are just days away. Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217, if you have an idea for a segment, miss something, and want to listen back to something you heard today. All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.